Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Colin, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page is quickly becoming a great place to hang out and talk about the world of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in the episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Israeli conductor who studied and assisted Daniel Barenboim. He spent the early part of his career having positions in opera houses in Israel, Austria and the United States, but since 2014, he's been principal conductor and artistic advisor at the West Australian Symphony Orchestra in Perth. It's a great pleasure to welcome Asha Fish. Asha, wonderful to meet you and to see you. How are you? I know you've had COVID recently. Uh, yeah, but in, two hours ago, I tested myself negative out of my 10-day quarantine with COVID. So I'm good. Brilliant news. And you didn't suffer too, ba- too badly with it? No, it was just like a little cold, like they described it with all my vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Um, I always go by, right back to the very beginning of your musical life. And I, I read that you're a pianist. And I wonder whether the piano was where you started with music and whether you come from a musical family. How was music as a child? I I come from a musical family, but I don't know if there are any musicians in the background because German Jews in Germany before the war, they couldn't pursue, they couldn't study, life was disrupted. So um, we don't know if anybody played or anybody was a real musician, but they love music. I grew up on 78 records of Brahms and Beethoven mostly. A lot of bees. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's it's uh, amazing that you come from that background, and, and of course, I'm not surprised that, of course, that uh, that you don't know um, whether you know, musicians were there in the background. We and, don't know. They love uh, music, in, but all German Jews, yeah. you know, they're, they're, there's a word in German mm. called Bildung, which is doesn't exist in English. It's like general education for a child, and that had to include music. And that's why my brother and I played and uh, all the kids in the neighborhood of, of the German Jews, the Yekes, we all played something, yeah. Uh, and when did you start the piano? I, I started first, I started mandolin and recorder in school and the, even the accordion for a while. So kind of late for a pianist at 10. Yeah, yeah. Well, I started the violin when I was nine, and that was my first instrument. So, you know, we can catch up if we love it enough. I think that's the simple answer. Yes, but I you think it have to, to, this, yeah. this probably has to do something with the fact that I quite early on realized that I was not going to become a pianist. I, I started a little bit too late, I think, for that. Mm. So you go through as a uh, playing the piano. Where did you end up studying at university? Did you go to university? Well, you know, in Israel, we first had to go to the army. So uh, I, ah, went, yes, I went to the army and I nailed a very, very good job in the army, which had nothing to do right. with music. And I was accepted to the army radio station where I was a reporter for four years. Oh, and, wow. And at the same time, because it was a great job and I was at home, you know, not in a camp or anything. So I, I started to go to the music academy to take piano lessons and then I, I enrolled, and then I, during the last two years, I already was studying conducting in Jerusalem at the Music Academy. Oh, okay, so you were studying conducting, okay. Uh, and who were you studying with? Mendi Rodan, who was my, my conducting teacher, and Benjamin Oren was my piano teacher, and, uh, and I had a good life there. <laughs> Great teachers. 
I seem to remember that being the same conducting teacher that Ilan Volkov had. For sure. Mendy, right? Mendy, there yeah. were, there were yeah. two or three in the history of my, my time in Israel. There were, and Mendy was the teacher in Jerusalem, and there were two more teachers in Tel Aviv, and that was about it. So we all started yeah. with Mendy. He was an incredible teacher. And remind me, was he a stick technician teacher or was he a more of a score study teacher? Sure. Stick technician. Uh, or about a stick pure technician. stick technician teacher. He yeah. was he was an incredible conductor and he he didn't make a big career mostly because he was not able to communicate well to orchestras to talk about the music. Mm. You know, he didn't couldn't do interviews about music. But his lessons, and just to watch his hand, he had an incredible ear and an incredible hand. And this made him, for me, one of, still, uh, technically speaking, one of the best conductors I've ever come across. But he couldn't word it. He, could, he couldn't talk about the music. <laughs> it's so important, isn't it? I mean, that, I mean the, the other way round is that, you know, I remember playing for certain musicians, some of them ex-soloists, when I was in the CBSO for 22 years as a violinist. And you think, well, actually, they have barely any stick technique at all. But because of their musical personality, they can get it across to us and we can play. Yes, and we, you know, we but want is, to it, play is it yeah. conducting, really? I mean, I... I yes, it, exactly. Yeah. It, for, you know, I did a lot in my time, maybe we come to this later, but I did a lot of opera performances, especially in Vienna and Berlin and Munich, where they don't rehearse, without rehearsals. And yes. if you cannot speak to the orchestra during a bohem performance and tell them I'm doing this and I'm doing that and you should play this way. You should be able to show it with your hands. And for me, this is, for, for many conductors, many of my colleagues look down at it as a superficial way of conducting. But I think that if you're a conductor, you should be able to conduct through music and not to speak about it. Uh, it's very nice if you can also explain and if you have ideas, but it's really not about that. Mm. Well, I, I remember talking to Alexander Joel, who is a, conducts a lot of opera as well, and he talks about going to the Vienna Opera and watching, you know, nights when people had wonderful stick technique. You know, as you just said, when you walk in with no rehearsal, people who could do it, and then others who would they were trying out for the first time. And he said, and it was like watching a car crash. Yes, absolutely. You know, when, um, he said it was just um, it was so difficult to. Uh, to, to watch some of these performances. And I'm with you. I think a, a good stick technique is something that you really need. Um, but of course you do need to be able to, to talk about the music and to speak in metaphors occasionally and, and tell the players what you need and, and, have, and not have too irascible a personality that you're going to rub an orchestra up the wrong way. Yeah, it's not exclusive. It's of course you have, mm. you have to have both. But I strongly yeah. believe that, uh, and that's why I enjoy the, the my biggest joy is the performance because yes. I always believe that with just with my, if, if I know the orchestra well, and if I trust the orchestra and if they're good, then just with my hand and with my eyes, I can do things differently. I don't have to explain myself. And, uh, and I think that it comes, I think that musicians in, in orchestras appreciate it. They, they don't like to be spoken about too much. I mean, the story here and there is interesting in some harmonic background and, and interpretation and explaining what's behind it. But I am I, a technician and I believe that that's what we have to do as conductors. We have to be able to conduct and not speak. And it sounds also like you have the, the belief and the technical chops, to use a modern phrase, that, uh, that means that you're, you can be spontaneous in performances, which I love. I love to suddenly do something you know, off the cuff. My favourite conductors I played for, Andrus Nelsons for one, he would just suddenly 
do something completely different in the concert and you think, oh, wow, that's it. It's sort of lifted me up and made me play. And I'm, I was never bored. Yeah, right if, you can trust you, it, if you can trust it, yeah. you can do it and they will follow. Uh, yeah. but, 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 you know, the real experience that I had there is, I must say that with many performances in a place like Vienna, where you never get a rehearsal if it's a repertory, uh, mm. uh, it's quite amazing with such a high-level orchestra what you can do and you yeah. can change and they don't need to know if you're two or you're in four you know as long as you're not in three when it's supposed to be two or four <laughs> they will uh they will be and they will understand you know and, and you yeah. develop a technique that shows that so if i go between two and four i transition i don't suddenly stop the four and go into two and and I, and I do a lot of, of transitional work where I imply with the way that I transit, transition from one beat to the other that everybody understands where I'm going to. Um, mm. And when I teach, and I, I love to teach in master classes, uh, this is what I concentrate on because uh, I see a lot of young musicians who know a lot about music, but as you said, the chops, it's just not there. I'm going to talk now about the journey from Israel to becoming Kapellmeister and assistant to Daniel Barenboim. Were you looking to go into the German Kapellmeister system? Um, you know, that famous system where you need a lot of pianism skills. Actually, how did you I get was from... looking, I was looking, I was involved with the Israeli opera since it was yeah. established in 85. And I was a pianist there and an assistant conductor. And I uh, definitely uh, was, was going to take the opera route because I could play the piano and this helped me. Mm. Um, but I never thought of, uh, I, I never did anything about it. Daniel came to Israel. Uh, he, he did a concert with a series with the Israel Philharmonic where he played mm. the Mozart G major concerto and conducted the, the Sleep von der Erde, the Song of the Earth by Mahler. And he got sick. And there was mm. no one around and they asked, he asked who could do it. And they said, well, there's a guy in the opera, but we don't think he can do it. But uh, <laughs> I, he, we met because I played the piano rehearsal. He had a change of, of uh, uh, singers. So I played yeah. a piano rehearsal and we chit-chatted a little bit. And he said, yeah, he should do it. So, um, yeah, you know, Radu Lupu happened to be in town and free that evening. <laughs> so, <Wow. laughs> so he jumped in for the concerto. He played a different concerto. And then uh, I yeah. did, so I did... The concerto with with the uh, lupu and uh das lied and then daniel invited me to join him in his new position in berlin uh in 92 uh -huh. and that's that's how i that's how i got to germany i have to ask had you conducted Mahler's das lied from the Erde before no way where no i've done yeah I, my repertoire <laughs> because is, i mean uh, there, there are bits in the last movement that uh, i think i'm trying to remember who it was said that they thought it was unconductable maybe it was Mahler himself i can't remember who it was it's no uh, it's definitely some... conductable i'm doing it next yeah. month again it's uh, i've done it quite a few times since and uh and somebody recorded the concert not a good recording but i have it and it's 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 together it's okay <laughs> it seems to be the piece uh, i remember Simon rattle um going ill and, and daniel harding a very young daniel harding jumping in with us in the Chatelet Theatre in Paris doing Das Lied. And I seem to remember him telling a little lie, a little white lie about saying he conducted it before and, and he hadn't. Um, but yeah, he did wonderfully well. The Israel Philharmonic called me at 6 p.m. 
on the night of that concert and they said, well, we don't think that you can conduct the, that you should conduct it. The Sleet, why didn't you do New World Symphony? I said, I, I haven't conducted any of the two and I much rather conduct something the orchestra has been playing for a week than something they've not been playing and I don't yeah. feel comfortable in. So luckily I insisted and, uh, and, it, was the, and it was the Mahler. Brilliant. So you go to the Berlin Staatsoper um, and assistant with Daniel Barenboim. I've spoken to Uma Mia Welber, who also um, works with, with Daniel Barenboim as well. What was working with him like? I mean, he said it was a very immersive experience from, you know, you basically learn so much from Daniel. What was it like for you? Look, I had good teachers before, but really everything that I know about music is from Daniel. If, if you spend yeah. three intensive years, uh, 12 hours a day, with him, you learn everything about everything. And still after this, you feel like you know nothing because he knows so much more. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's um, he's he's just, he's he's unlike anybody else in the world today. I mean, yeah. I think if yeah. we lived in, in Mozart times, he would have been Mozart. He is just yeah. that, he's connect, he's wired in a different way. He's really a genius. And uh, you learn from him, how to do things, but how to learn things and what you still have to learn to really become a great musician, a great conductor. And it's impossible because it's, it's, it's a notion of information. He just knows everything about, yeah. about anything, singing, cello playing, violin playing, flute playing, harmonies, uh, French, Russian, German, you name it. He's the dictionary definition of a polymath, somebody who just knows everything about everything. He's the one. And, and, I learned most by playing rehearsals for him when he was conducting yeah. and I was playing. And especially when we had coaching sessions. So it was just me and him and a singer in the room. And, and these were, uh, the, these were priceless. It's, it's uh, yeah. what I learned there. And of course I try, of course we all work, everybody who worked with Daniel is working a little bit the way that he works. We're trying to, to emulate that, but I've learned so much. And from there, did you immediately start doing these performances in Berlin and Vienna where you go in with no rehearsal? Or was that going on at the same time? Um, and uh, in, were you getting a lot of conducting at the Staatsoper whilst you were in the role for three I years? got, so, so when I got there, they gave me, you know, they gave me Barbara Seville, they gave me Cosi Fantute, they gave me a few more performances. But the first piece that we did together that I assisted on Daniel was Parsifal, which was my first Wagner. Mm. And for the April performances, he got a gig somewhere. I don't remember what was the reason. But he said, Asher, are you interested in conducting Parsifal? I said, yes, sure, why not? Uh, and they were kind enough to give me two rehearsals. Uh, and after the first rehearsal, I came home and I, and I had temperature. I was sick. I had, I had the Wagner bug. Uh, fish. <laughs> I would have tested positive for the <laughs> Wagner bug. It was my first time to conduct Wagner and uh, it hasn't left me since. If I look at your, your CV, um, you spend five years as chief conductor of the Vienna Volksoper between 95 and 2000. Also uh, music director of the New Israel Opera 98 to 08 and also principal guest conductor at Seattle Opera 07 to 13. Um, obviously opera was very much where your way in. Um, 
how soon into that were you starting to get symphonic work with uh, guesting uh, with orchestras? Or was it almost all exclusively opera at the very beginning? No, again, if you work in Berlin with Daniel Barenboim, the, the huge advantage, first of all, he's he's the one conductor who pushes all of his assistants. We, everybody who assisted him uh, has made a career. Uh, and yeah. that's because of him. It's not only because, you know, it's not because other assistants were not as good. They just didn't have the... Mm. catalyze somebody who really catapulted you into your career. And of course, it meant with Daniel Barmore, and it meant playing the piano, it meant conducting opera, and it meant conducting uh, symphonic concerts. So yeah. I started at the same time. But since I had the capacity at the opera and I felt that I, I had the technique, I started to do these. Uh, when I went to Vienna, my my contract included 15 performances a year at the Staatsoper, and that's how I started. And then I started to go mm. back to Berlin, and then Munich came along, and that's how I started uh, to do a lot of repertory. Well, it leads to my next question, which is before we go to Australia and your current job as principal conductor and artistic advisor with the Western Australian Symphony Orchestra. If we look at your commitments in Australia and also your history of being an opera conductor, and therefore I'm assuming you're probably going to want to do a couple of productions a year, um, what sort of percentage of the time are you looking at um, fitting in opera around Australia and also guest conducting new orchestras or old friends. How do you see, a, a, I mean, obviously away from COVID, how do you see a year panning out for you in an ideal world? Well, it used to be 70% maybe opera and 30% concert. And now it's yeah. um, it's even more than 50% concert because of my position in Australia. And yeah. in Australia, I don't do opera. I mean, I will do and I will go and do something in the future. But but basically, I do uh, uh, only concerts. We do some opera and concert. We did Tristan. We did Fidelio. Uh, but if I go to Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane, other orchestras, I I concentrate on uh, symphonic repertory. And since I'm doing less and less repertory, as just you know jumping in to do evenings, uh, then I do three four productions a year, and the rest is concerts. Yeah. So you don't you you now try not to do those one night jump ins. Um, I've, I've, I, I see the sort of you know if you asked me before about the going through the uh, Kapellmeister route. I see it as graduating into uh, symphonic work. <laughs> yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, so let's talk about Australia because it's it's such a well it feels like such a long way from the old Europe you know the Vienna and Berlin you've been talking about um, it's based in Perth uh, you started in 2014 you've just had your contract extended to 2023 I read um, what's the orchestra like um, compared to Israel or to Europe what are their working practices like how often do they work um, and what you know? What can a conductor expect if they were to go and guest conduct the, the I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that my job in Australia is I'm having a blast there. Is yeah. and just because it's so far away, unfortunately, people don't really know what's going on there. So yeah, this is a fantastic orchestra. They, I, I keep saying that they, for me, are the the, the perfect mix between English British musicians and American musicians in that mm. they are extremely efficient, they are great sight readers, they will always come 100% prepared. But unlike 
unlike the, uh, the Anglo-Saxon world, I mean, as part of the Anglo-Saxon world, but they're much more laid back. They're much more relaxed. So yeah. they are, they're very, very disciplined. The rehearsals, I mean, if I'd stop the baton, when I used to stop in a rehearsal in Israel, the, the practice was I couldn't get the musicians to, to shut up. So yeah. I would scream, shut up, before I would beat it down. So, <laughs> because the minute wow. I would stop, it was yeah. impossible to restart the rehearsal. And then you would say the number where you want to start and you started five times. I had uh, uh, I had a friend conductor, a German conductor, who came to watch a rehearsal. And he couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that it took me so long to restart the rehearsal after I said something. Yeah. So my, my technique was to shut them up before I even stopped conducting <laughs> while, as they were playing. Um, and it's, Australia is a dream. It's just, and it's not only Perth. It's, I mean, Perth is, I love this orchestra so much. They are really, they, they give me the joy of the years when I go there. But the SSO as well, and other orchestras, Melbourne, uh, New Zealand also, there's a wonderful atmosphere in the rehearsals. And you can get everything you want. They really play mm. on the highest level. The brass is is exquisite. The the woodwind playing, it's all fantastic. It's just too far. Yeah. Well, we have something in common because we've probably conducted countless concerts, both of us, with the same concertmaster or leader because, yeah, your leader in uh, Perth, Australia, is Lawrence Jackson, who used to be leader of the CBSO, and I, I countless concerts I've conducted where he led the orchestra, but also as a soloist, um, I conducted the Nielsen with him, uh, the Brahms with him, the Brahms double with him, and I'm probably leaving many things out. What sort of addition has he been? I know how good he is, but what's he, uh, how, you know, he, how's he um, enjoying life in Perth? He's been well. You know what you know about Lawrence is that he's he's the perfect concert master because yes. he never gives up to me anyway. I don't know. We we we've had a wonderful relationship, but I'm sure that before as well, he is not one of those concert masters who give the conductors the feeling that they know better and that they can do it better and that the orchestra knows better. He's really out there to help. It's his personality, yeah. and he has made a profession and an art out out of. The, the, the profession of concert being a concert master and he 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 transformed my strings not only the the violins but the all the, the entire string section in as the orchestra because they look at him they they all look up at him they know how good he is and he's he has the love and the support of the orchestra and he's, mm. he's for me he was it was great that he decided that birmingham was too rainy for him and he didn't want to re retire there and life of a musician in england as you know is really hard and he wanted to be in the sun and uh we were lucky to be the ones who were just looking for a concert master he came he liked the orchestra and he stayed with sarah his wife and he's been a great addition. And, and as, as I said, he really transformed the sound of the orchestra. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about this is for the listener is that you sort of mentioned, I mean, in the UK, the, the, those sort of leaders are now retiring or have retired. This old school of concertmaster or leader where the, the scroll was constantly leading and bringing in everybody, almost as if to say, ignore the guy with the stick or the lady with the stick, come with my scroll because they don't know what they're doing. And and more often than not, they, you know, some one or two I can think of in particular who now have, have, have stopped playing, you know, that they, they could be quite in their questioning, quite aggressive 
if, if that's the right way of, of putting it. Um, I think intim- intimidating. Intimidating. Yeah, exactly. The right word. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Aggressive, yes, but it can be even. Yeah. It can be. Uh, it, it can be oppressive, but uh, not on the surface. But it's it's very intimidating, and there are very very few concert masters who really give you the feeling we're here to help, and you just do what you need to do, and I will help you uh, convey to the to the strings. And and Lawrence, yeah, is exactly. And La- Lawrence is definitely one of those, and what he does through just playing the violin so wonderfully and sort of giving everybody a comfort blanket around him. When he asks you a question, you take it very seriously. Absolutely. You know, when he, when he makes a point, you take it very seriously. And Lawrence, Lawrence comes to me yeah. before concerts to my room, knock, knock. Yeah. And he says, Asher, can, can you please? And I know that if he makes a, a specific request about a beat that they need, an entrance, uh, a different tempo, I will do it. I will in 99% mm. of the time, do what he asks for because I really know that he wants me to have a good concert. He wants us to succeed. And uh, if mm. he gives me an, a piece of advice, I take it. Yeah. Well, I think the last time I conducted him before he left to come to you, we did two performances of the Eroica, 24 hours apart, Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Yeah. And just at the before the start of the, the short dress rehearsal before the second performance, he just got up off his chair and came and had a quiet word to me and said, may I suggest that the end of the Eroica is, um, last night was just beyond the bounds of possibility. And that was a, it was a very nice way of saying, you you idiot, it was way too fast. <laughs> um, but it, it was put in such a Lawrence way that I, I immediately I thought, yeah, absolutely. Take, well, I'm taking that point on board. Um, and yeah, as a soloist, a real joy to work with. So my regards to him through you, next time you see him, um, yeah, well, the leader is such an important person. You know, um, the old-fashioned phrase would be right-hand man, but of course they're not. They're normally on our left hand. Um, and uh, it's, you can lose, you know, an orchestra uh, very quickly if the leader and you don't strike up a good relationship or, you know, the, the, they want to point score with you. My teacher, Mendy Rodan, used to say you need three friends in the orchestra, of course the concertmaster, the oboe, the first oboe, and the timpanist. If they're on your side, you're you're safe. And uh, and he's right. He's right. Uh, oboes tend to have a very. Uh, I mean, we don't have. We're, we're in search for a principal oboist, and we have an extremely strong and fantastic Andrew Nicholson in the first uh, flute. You might know him. He's a Brit, and uh, so he's he's the strong character there. But usually, it's first oboe and timpani is very important. To keep things together. Oh God, yes, the timpanist, the second conductor, as I like to call yes. them. Yes. Um, yeah, when they've got a rhythm, if then if they want to ignore you, they can take the whole orchestra with them, and that's just the fact. Um, I'm going to go on to guesting. Um, how much guesting do you like to do in a year? And what I mean by that is a brand new orchestra, somebody you've never met before, which still for all of us is still a nerve-wracking experience. Really, that first time you put a beat down and you don't know what's going to come back or how soon it's going to come back. When you do that, do you have any strategies or any programs you like to take the first time you go somewhere? Or is it something at the moment you're not that fussed about doing? I'm, I'm not so fussy about doing it anymore. I, I did it no. so many times, especially in the United States, you know, dozens of orchestras. No. Every time going to a new orchestra is, is a struggle because 
Look, it's a long story, but basically the problem is that uh, careers of conductors are decided by orchestras nowadays. They're not decided yes. by managers and impresarios and critics. It's the orchestra, it's the orchestras who decide who gets to go on. Uh, because, you know, they do in America, they do the surveys. It's really official. If the orchestra, if you don't pass the test of the orchestra, you will not be invited again. If you're not invited in one place, then the word goes around and you're not invited in other orchestras. And yeah. so inevitably you go there trying to make the orchestra like you. And that's for a conductor is a very bad start because if, if you mm. conduct in a way that you want to be liked by an orchestra, um, First of all, you will not do anything that is personal and different. So they're not going to like you anyway. <laughs> and secondly, and more importantly, is that you always compromise. You, you, you revert to the mean. You go into the, the, the style that the orchestra is offering you and you're not really being the boss and trying to do what you really believe in. And it's a very tight rope. It's a, I find it an extremely difficult thing to go to a great orchestra, let's say Chicago Symphony, and to be yourself for the first time. Everything you bring, they've played a hundred million times with the greatest conductors. They know it. Um, it's a problem. So what mm. do you do? Uh, you do it. You have to do it. You, 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 you can't. And, and some conductors succeed in, in doing it. I learned that, for example, you have to go to an American orchestra with a very different uh, mood in a very different state of mind than if you go to a German orchestra or an Italian orchestra or a Japanese orchestra. It's all different. The Germans don't mind if you're a little bit assertive and you demand things and you don't show them that they're the absolute best in the world. In America, and that's, uh, that's another story, that's why I think there's so few young American conductors, even though they have thousands of students, but they, they don't make a career because they're taught to be very nice and complimentary to the orchestra. And the orchestras accept that, you know. Mm -hmm. If you stop and you want to ask for something, you first have to say, this was so wonderful, the best I've ever heard it, but would you please make a little more crescendo on the second note? Or that's, that's how conductors speak to orchestras in America. It's become absolutely ridiculous. And since I'm well, getting older and it's boring, I like to do less and less of that. I, I like to go back yeah. to where where I know exactly where I can start working from the first moment, but mostly where I can be myself and do the kind of music making I would like to do. Mm. Well, um, it's, isn't it weird that, you know, you have to preface everything, well, that's the best I've ever heard it, or isn't that, well, that was superb, but by the way, you just played a wrong note, or but, but, by yeah. the way, could you play that slightly sharper? Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, I mean, you don't, it doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, the opposite, which is go straight out and just be blunt. You know, there are nice ways of putting things and there are ways of being... But going back to being yourself, I couldn't agree more. I fell foul of this. The first time I worked away from Birmingham and I worked in Germany and I just tried to please everybody. And the whole week was just disastrous. And I, I flew home from back from that first concert away from the UK thinking, right, next time, just do your thing. If you're good enough, there'll be enough people out there who like what you do. Exactly. And if it doesn't every, work with, every with one orchestra or with eight orchestras, it will work with number nine. And then yeah. you will find the orchestras where you can work and they're happy to work with you. And then you'll be much happier. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm trying to really concentrate on...
um, one final question before the 10 questions. And the question I've asked every single conductor on the podcast, which is about preparing a score and learning a new score. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a system? Do you go to the piano or do you sit and use your inner ear? Do you go big and then smaller and smaller and smaller or start a page one and go to the end? And are you a scribbler of things in red and blue and black or highlighter pens or do you like to commit it all to memory? What What's your strategy for okay. learning a score? So, look, I'm a pianist. I'm attached to the piano. I do everything at the piano. Uh, I know that sometimes it's better to learn a score without the piano, just reading it. But for me, it's such learning a score is a visceral thing. I need to feel the music in my bones. I need. I, I don't know how people conduct when they cannot play the piano. If they cannot play uh, in the Eroica second movement, the triplets in the left hand against the oboe melody in the right hand. I, I just don't know how you put it together if you can't actually do it on a piano. So for me, it's all from the piano. Um, I, I, you know, opera, I start as the composers did. I start with the vocal score. I buy or download the vocal score and I work only from the vocal score when I feel that I know the rhythms and I know what Verdi wanted at a specific uh, uh, page. Then I go, as Verdi did, you know, I go to the orchestration and I learn the orchestration. I try to put it on top of the... So right. that's, that's my approach in opera. In opera, especially in traditional opera, you cannot go to do a production without listening to, to recordings because of the traditions. You just, you know, mm. you can if you're Daniel Barnboim, then you can do whatever you want. But uh, uh, <laughs> if you're going, especially if there's little rehearsals or few rehearsals, or if you're going to Italy and you're not going to do something, you're going to do something Italian opera and miss a very famous uh, fermata stop, uh, you'll be out. So you have to listen in opera. And uh, so, so in opera from small to big, in... And, and as when I was young, and I, I wish I, I had my brother next to me, he lives in the United States, uh, uh, everything I learned was from forehands. I, we played the entire symphonic repertory the way they used to learn it in the beginning of the 20th century, which is uh, yeah. forehands, used to play together. And that's the best way, because like this, you can get in most of the notes, if not all the notes for, you know, for classical symphonies, definitely romantic repertory. But I played everything we played. I, I was thinking about it the other day. I played Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, a forehand version, where I, I used to play most of the violin part and my brother, most of the orchestra part. But that's how I learned. Um, so so it's, it's piano. I'm a pianist. I'm attached to the piano. And... You know, I there's a myth in our in our business. How much can conductors really hear when they hear a score? And I know there are different levels there. And probably somebody like Pierre Boulez could hear the score entirely. Yeah. But can you hear it in tempo and in and and feel the inside rhythms inside in real time? And I find it very hard to believe that a lot of people can do it. I, I can do it. I can do it, but it's, it's slow and I have to put it together and I have to hear the harmonies and slowly put it together. But to really, but at the piano, I just put it down. I'm a very good sight reader. So I, I put it down and I read. Mm. And do you make markings? Are you a marker upper? I'm very well known to have zero markings in my score. My scores are virgin. Uh -huh. There's not one marking in my scores. Uh, I'm known it's, for that it, because it, uh, in Vienna, it, 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 
a, a Parsifal performance without a rehearsal and the flautists were scrambling to find out if I'm going into six at the end of the prelude or not. And they came to my room and I was not there and my manager was there and he allowed them to open my score and they couldn't believe it because especially my <laughs> father's shot scores, which are holy, you know, I, I don't put anything uh, in my scores. I will put in pencil if I promise an orchestra to do something in two or in three and yeah. just not to forget, if, especially if I tell them I do something in three, then I will put in small pencil. But yeah. I've never used a color ever in a score. Oh, it's been a long time since I had somebody who didn't write anything in. Um, uh, and for, for a long time, it was sort of 50-50 at the beginning of the podcast. And then the, the marker-uppers took over, the Red, Blue and Black Brigade, of which I am one. I'll hold my hand up. And the problem is I would, I would yeah. mark it. The two reasons I don't do it. One, I'm lazy uh, to sit there and, you know, sharpen my pencils. And, uh, but mostly it's because when I have a red dot on my score, that's all I see when I look at the score. I don't see the music <laughs> anymore. Uh, you probably know that some conductors, this is really the case. You cannot see the score under the no. markings. And they conduct the markings. Not, and I, I really try to honestly read the score if I don't have it memorized. In a performance, you know, I, I, I look at it and I want to see the, the notes. I don't want to see anything else. I have one question, which it, it's actually popped up in an episode only a few episodes ago. Alice Farnham, who conducts a lot of opera, said that she also listens to recordings for similar reasons that you do, you know, to find Italian traditions or whatever else. But she tries to listen to recordings of live performances because she says that, you know, if you listen to a recording that's done in a studio and, uh, you know, an aria is taken at a particularly slow speed, Sometimes that speed is actually unobtainable in a live performance because the singer's got to come back and sing again in the aria, uh, in the in the first act or whatever. Whereas when it's a recording, they can just record that aria and then go and have a lie down and not sing again for another two sessions. Definitely. Do you do that? Definitely. Yeah. Well, I I don't. I try to listen very little because the problem is, the problem is in opera is that you can have the music in a certain way and it can be a fantastic way in your mind. You, it never translates with the singers you have. And I, I have, as, this is as a principle, I do not decide a tempo of an aria because I know, before I know who is singing it. Because yes. different singers have different weight of voice. Some are heavier, some are lighter. Some have longer breath, some have shorter. Some have coloratura, some don't. Uh, mm. Some just convince you, but some, some have done it a million times and you never did it. <laughs> All of these could be reasons why I will not decide on a tempo. And I've conducted very famous arias in entirely different tempi because I had different singers at hand. And, and I think, again, it's like stick technique. This is, we're interpreters, we're not composers. You know, we, we, we are to interpret with the forces that we have for the performance. And that's what I always mm. do. Are you fascinated by conductors and conducting? And would you like to learn a lot more about what we do and how we do it? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read articles on conducting and conductors, and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. 
All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash Mike on the Podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than one pint of beer in most cities across the planet, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Asha Fish. Asha, it's time for the 10 questions. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love, since my childhood, the sound of rain, just because we never had any in Jerusalem. (laughs) And I was always waiting for the sound of rain. And until today, my body, my molecules get in order and they're all cheering when they hear the sound of rain. And the (laughs) one sound that I cannot stand is... Finger, is fingers of a guitarist going over the strings with the left hand. Oh, I know that sound. I it's think of it of now and yeah. I get shivers. I only have to imagine this sound and it puts me off. I don't know what it is, but that's the, 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 that's the one sound I hate. It's a, weir- it's a weird sound. It's, you know, it's difficult to describe. It's especially it's a sort of mixture of sweat and finger up that string. And you can hear yeah, but it's the, it's the vibrations the between the, the finger and yeah. the little grooves in the string. I yeah. also get it in mandolin playing. Yeah. Not in, less in, less in string instruments, but especially mm. with a guitar. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny sound. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Look, for me, other than music, the culinary world is my world. And ah. the best things that I've done on free days is ask for the local orchestra or opera to arrange for me a day in a kitchen of a very good restaurant. Yeah. And I did it a few times and I should do it much more because these are happy days. I just, it's, mm. it's, it's a joy to do that. I have a friend of mine, uh, he's a dear friend, Alistair Malloy, who I know listens to this podcast. Uh, who's a percussionist, but he's also a presenter of uh, family concerts and schools concerts. And he's worked a lot in the in the Far East. And he was telling me that on a day off, he went off and did a, a Malaysian cookery course somewhere. And he said it was one of the best days off he's ever had. Just turned up at this place and just learned to cook some Malaysian food. Yes. And uh, I'm a terrible cook, but I love food. Um, and so, yeah, that sort of day interests me greatly. Really, it does. And so you will go into a, an actual kitchen and go and watch or will you go and, and get, get your I hands dirty? I would watch in some kitchens they give me some chores and I cut or trim uh, but I really am I'm snooping around I'm smelling I get to taste <laughs> and uh, yeah. they treat me nicely because they know that I'm a conductor who is coming to spend a day in their uh, yeah. rain and uh, and it's great it's I've learned a lot it's wonderful oh in that case, I'm looking forward to the answer to question 10. I always look forward to the answer to question 10 anyway, but I'm looking forward to it even more now. Number four, back to music and conducting. Can you name a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? It's a cliche, but I must say that Carlos Kleiber is for me. The concert, Carlos Kleiber conducting the Vienna Philharmonic in New Year's concert is for me the best yes. piece of conducting out there. And there are many, many other good things, but this is this is just beyond. This is something where I don't, mm. I can't really explain how it's done. It's great. Yeah. Well, I just recently conducted my first New Year's concert of Strauss waltzes and polkas. Congratulations. Seven hundred. 
790 concerts into my career. It was my first one. And, and of course, the first place I started was to watch both of the Kleiber New Year's Day concerts. And after you've got over the depressed state of thinking, well, I can never do anything like that. Um, but then you start listening and start thinking, well, that, that's, you know, it's the idiom and how it is. And, you know, and I try to, but then you get to certain moments of Fledermaz Overture and all I can see in my mind's eye is Carlos Fledermaz yeah, exactly. It is a cliche, and so many people have given that answer. And my my answer to anybody who complains to me on Twitter or Facebook is, people, all of the conductors pick him because we conductors think he was the best. So there we go. Um, yeah, don't complain. If if we keep saying it, there must be some truth. No, no, I'm honest. I'm honest. I, yeah. I love a lot of Bernstein. I love a lot of Karajan. There's so many great things. But the one thing that blows me away is Carlos Kleiber with Vienna Philharmonic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, question five is possibly harder, though I don't think in your case it will be because of who no, taught you. No, so, it, it, yeah. you know, they were both born in Buenos Aires. <laughs> <laughs> so, so therefore, I'm assuming your answer to the, your favourite question. Look, as, it's Barenboim. not a question of favourite. Yeah. I, I can tell yeah. you, knowing Daniel Barnborn, yeah. knowing him very well, I can tell you that there is no one in the world who has who comes close to the capacity. I'm not, I'm not speaking about taste or, of course, one piece can be better done by somebody else. It doesn't matter. But the capacity yes. to be able to conduct all of Bruckner's symphonies this week without the score and, by the way, sit and play 32 Beethoven sonatas and all of Mozart <laughs> concerti and let's not forget Chopin nocturnes and Mendelssohn uh, songs without words and and all of Wagner operas at the same time. I mean, no nobody. And then know the instruments and the orchestras and the material. Uh, he's just a genius. And he's the yeah. best living musician for me. Hands down, there's no doubt. No doubt about it. Well, you gave the same almost identical ringing endorsement that Irma Mir Welber gave. Uh, and it was, yeah, very similar. If you work words. with Daniel yeah. and then yeah. you see what's around and you meet other conductors and musicians. Look, I've seen him teach Alisa Weilerston a lesson on the Elgar Cello Concerto. He did not have the score in front of him. He gave her mm. every fingering, every bowing, every, every bar interpretation on an entire concerto, which he has not done probably since he's done it with Jacqueline Dupré. Uh, yeah. The man is just, you can't describe in words what he knows. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? It would have to come from opera because I've realized that the difficulties that opera add to the concert work really make it sometimes almost undoable. Uh, yeah. The hardest thing I've ever conducted is coming in two years, and that's King Lear by Riemann in Madrid. Right. And I think that's going to be the hardest work I've ever conducted. But mm. uh, I'll explain why I think something like Wozzeck is right up there. Uh, if, if you do the three orchestral pieces, Opus 15 by Schoenberg, by Berg, they're the same music as Wozzeck, but they're doable. They're, they're not yeah. so hard. The minute you have opera, you have the stage, you have singers, you have a chorus, you have staging, it makes a piece like Wozzeck to really do it well and to make it matter of fact and very natural sounding is probably the hardest opera I had to do. But I think that King Lear tops that. So we will see in two years. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you that the, 
everything that is added on top of just the music and the singing with opera, the staging, it can be the lighting, it can be working from a pit or, you know, the different, it adds so many layers to, of complexity onto what you have to do. And then you go and conduct on a symphonic stage again and everything feels remarkably Absolutely. easy. The Rite of Spring is a very easy piece to conduct if you do this kind of repertory in the theatre with singers. Uh, it's just so much more complex. Now, question seven, dear listener. It's been a while since you've heard this, but each conductor is told that they're not allowed to say passport, baton, phone score or suitcase. And so I shall ask you, Asher, when travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? I couldn't understand why you didn't allow me to say iPad. It's, it's definitely iPad is the, is the one thing that... I, now, now, you have to understand, for listeners, this is very important to understand. I think since the days of travelling composers, since Mozart and Beethoven, the, the mm. greatest invention for conductors is the iPad, because... You know, as a pianist and as an opera conductor and concert conductor, I used to travel with 20 kilos of scores. I used to travel with the opera I was conducting, with the concerts I was learning, and with all my piano music that I wanted to keep practicing. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. of course, I couldn't do, so I had to give up and leave stuff at home and try to borrow things. In it. Now I have my entire library in a piece of metal and glass. Yeah. And I cannot tell you what what... A relief it is. I have my entire piano library and all my scores on an iPad and I go with the mm. iPad and I have it all with me. And with the same little piece of metal and, and, and glass, I can watch movies and I can read any book that I would like to read. Uh, because of course, if you carry 20 scores, you don't carry books on top of no. those. So the iPad, I, I, could leave, I could leave home with anything but my iPad. I'm going to allow iPad because I had to put some rules in front of that question. Otherwise, I thought I was going to get the same answer every single week, which was going to be iPad, iPhone. Oh, but iPad, I have to iPad, explain iPhone. why. I mean, but, I can, but, I can travel yeah. without my phone. I'm, I'm good without my phone. I don't talk yeah. a lot on the phone. Of course, it's very convenient. But the iPad has changed my life as a musician. It, it has made yeah. it easy for me. You asked me about marking scores. Just think of the fact that you can have two scores, one marked and one unmarked. Yes. In the same iPad. Absolutely. What a great yeah. thing. You know, nobody would travel with two scores, one with markings and one without. Use the one with the markings for the rehearsals and then open a new clean score for the performance. Things yeah. that we never used to do. I can, I can, uh, uh, we, we spoke about forehand music. Where to find all these things? I need now a Bruckner Symphony. In two minutes, I have a Bruckner Symphony forehand edition and I can yeah. sit down with a pianist and with two synchronized iPads, we can even have our own parts in it's yeah. just it's just such a such a revolution well that's why i'm going to allow it because right. <laughs> the, 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 the listener ought to hear the fact that yes no but honestly other totally, than that totally and my passport, our, our i need life. my passport and my credit card and my ipad and my but I, other than yeah. that i can always manage and yeah. with a credit card but, you can always buy something Yes, of course, of course. But yeah, the, the listener ought to know that, yes, it, that it's revolutionary. I just didn't want everybody to give the same answer. And I'd, I, I've had some very interesting answers, but I've had also had, dear listener, quite a few complaints about this question as well. Why can't I say iPad? So, but I'm going to allow it. We're in, we're in the 90s now, so it's time to relax and, and let you have it. Um, number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The answer is, it's, it's a fantasy, and I, maybe in my lifetime it will happen, but I think that we have to get rid of the format 
of concerts today. I think, yeah. I think it's bringing classical music down. I think that we have to think of something completely different. I'm trying different ways with my orchestra. I'm doing uh, lecture concerts. I speak to the audience. I think that this is something that has to happen everywhere. We conductors don't communicate enough with audiences. We should communicate less mm. with orchestras, but more with audiences. Uh, because I see what people take away from concerts when they also hear a little bit of explanation and some examples from the music. Um, I think we have to get rid of this overture concerto symphony business. It's killing our profession. I agree about communicating with the audience. As a player, I used to hate it when the conductor would turn around and talk to the audience, go, go, you know. But actually, I've started doing it, and I, I think it's so important. And I think um, whether it's standard repertoire or a piece that you want to champion and you want to give the audience a flavour of what you feel about it, why you're so passionate about it, well, but I, I think it really helps. I try, really, to, really I helps. try to incorporate... I, I, I don't like my musicians being annoyed by this, and I think we found a way to do it. I, I really incorporate them in... And we do crazy things. Like, we spoke about the classical symphony, and I told the audience that if you really want to be authentic, then you cannot rehearse a Haydn symphony because they were never rehearsed. And we we sight read a Haydn movement in in concert. Oh wow! Uh, things like that, and I and I try mm. to make them be part of it rather than just sitting there listening. And they like it. They I I know that they like it and they support it. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I love to cook, but I know mm. that if I had to get up at five a.m. and go to the market and get produce and. I would lose a lot of money very quickly. So <laughs> I, I would probably do something culinary, but not. I wouldn't run a restaurant because I would fail, I think, if I had to run a yeah. restaurant. I, I can't structure my days like this. Um, but, but something with food. I would yeah, yeah, maybe cook sous vide and distribute it in the world or uh, import Dungeness crab from Seattle to Munich. Something crazy. Yeah. Well, you've mentioned food twice now, so it's come to question 10. Um, and if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I would cook myself a pasta alla carbonara and I would drink a schnapps Ooh. after it. Uh, sorry, a schnapps? Yes. It's become my... I'm in Germany now for about 10 years. Uh, it, I, I lost... I don't know why. Last year I lost my flavour for wine. I... You know, I, I work in Australia, I drink phenomenal wines, but if they're not mm. phenomenal, then I stopped enjoying them. <laughs> so, um, but a carbonara and then cutting it off with a schnapps after would be ideal for me. Well, carbonara is one of my favorites. Um, schnapps, I've not really got into. You can't, uh, I mean, get, got you can't get a good schnapps out of Germany. Um, yeah. It's not grappa, it's, it's a spirit. It's... Uh, but German and Austrian schnapses, if they're good schnapses, they're really perfect drinks. They're wonderful. I recommend well, it, the, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully in the future we can meet and, and carry on chatting. We have to meet in Germany or else me. I have to bring a bottle yeah. with me. Exactly. We can meet over some schnapps. It would be lovely. Asher, it's been wonderful. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And I really do hope to meet you over a glass of schnapps. Very so soon. do I. And thank you very much for making it so entertaining and easy. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time. 
I chat with a conductor who was born in South Korea. She shot to fame at the age of 11 when she won the Rostropovich International Cello Competition and has since gone on to a very successful career as a conductor. After a spell as the music director of the Qatar Philharmonic, since 2017 she's been the chief conductor of the Trondheim Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye bye. <laughs>